0: I'll invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 23. Last time we looked at God's unified plan of redemption, which was always to save a people in Christ Jesus through faith. And we talked about how we've looked the last couple weeks at how the Mosaic Covenant Uh, The Old Covenant didn't work against this plan, but rather actually served that plan. So just because the Mosaic Covenant enters in and and talks about, you know, gives all of these laws and whatnot, whereas God had made a promise to Abraham, believed, received by faith, and he was justified, uh, this intrusion, as it might seem, of the Law Covenant uh, did not upset or change God's plan, but rather serve to further that plan. And as we go through verses 23 through to the end of uh, the chapter, to verse 29, we're going to see more of this, but the, the focus is going to move in toward the oneness of God's people in Christ Jesus. So this one plan of God produces one unified people. That's what we are seeing here. And so let's read this, and then we will get into it. So beginning in verse 23, Galatians chapter 3. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Christian unity is is a precious gift. It is, it is something that is an objective reality. That is, in Christ Jesus, those who believe are one people. Uh, we don't create that state. We don't create that unity. Unity is not simply something we try to fabricate and make up. It's, it is what we are. What Scripture does call us to do is to preserve or to maintain the outward expression of that unity that we truly do possess by faith in Christ. That is, we are called to walk as one, even as we are already actually one people in Christ. Both the objective unity that we have in Christ by faith and that subjective experience Of that unity with other believers, both of these things are precious gifts. And of course, unity in Christ is not something that we just think of in terms of one local church as we are. But we possess a unity with all those the world over who are likewise born again in Christ Jesus. Again, this text that we're looking at this afternoon reveals that God's one plan to redeem in Christ produces one people who are truly united in Christ. And of course, there's all kinds of um, implications that come from this reality of being one people in Christ, and we'll look at some of those as we go. So we're going to give consideration to this unity, this precious unity, as we look at God's creation of one people in Christ from all nations. So our outline as we go through this text, I'll just give you the outline up front. We're looking at God's one people in Christ from all nations. Number one was always the plan. That's in verses 23 to 25. God's one people in Christ from all nations. Secondly, are those united to Christ by faith. If we're wondering who are these people, how would we identify them or know them, they are those united to Christ by faith. Thirdly, God's one people in Christ from all nations are truly one. Again, truly one. It's who we are. So let's begin. First, God's one people in Christ from all nations was always the plan. Uh, This is somewhat repetitive from last week, but that's because Paul is repeating himself from the verses that we looked at last week. And we did kind of dip into verses 23 to 25 last time. Paul is explaining to us again how it is that the Mosaic Covenant served the purpose of God's promise to Abraham to send that offspring who is the Lord Jesus Christ and to bless the nations through that offspring. So if that is a blessing that is received by faith, what do we make of this inserting of this Mosaic covenant that has this obvious legal bent to it where they are to do certain things and receive certain blessings? What do we make of this? We've been looking at that the last couple of weeks. And in verses 23 to 25, we are once again shown that the Mosaic covenant was temporary and it was preparatory. That is, it was meant to prepare people for Christ, and it was always designed to give way once Christ came. This is a source of much confusion amongst many people as they try to put together their Bibles and understand it. It was always meant to be a temporary thing serving a greater purpose. So in verse 23, Paul writes, says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Now, when he says before faith came, he's, this doesn't mean that faith, that is trusting God and his promises, uh, that this was not in operation prior to the coming of Christ and the new covenant. Right? If, if that's what he meant, that you know faith is a new covenant, New Testament thing, and before that it's works and law and whatnot, and, the, and faith is really not a thing in the Old Testament, if that's what he was saying by this, he'd be completely undermining the entirety of the whole letter to the Galatians the entirety of everything he has said so far um, that's not at all like the opposite of what he has been saying uh, he has been stressing the importance of faith this whole time he's been showing how um, sinners have always only ever been justified by God's grace through faith alone in fact Abraham, he calls the man of faith in verse 9. He's the prototypical man of faith. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, of course, faith was always demanded. It was always present in amongst God's people. Uh, those who truly believed, of course, were those who had faith. So what, what does he mean by this, then, before faith came? Well, he's using faith here as shorthand, for the coming of Christ and the new covenant that Christ brought about. Faith is again, I think he's using it this way, he's speaking of it this way because he's once again upholding that contrast between faith, believing God, receiving promises with an empty hand, and works of the law. Again, the Mosaic covenant was a law, a legal covenant governing life in the land of Canaan. And the new covenant is rather the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, which brings with it eternal life received through faith. And so in verse 24, the parallel to this statement, before faith came, is he says, uh, is the phrase, until Christ came. Which is referring to the same, the same thing. So before faith came means before Christ came and inaugurated, brought about the new covenant. So... Before that time, before faith came, Paul says we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So again, as we saw last time, the Mosaic covenant, the law covenant, imprisoned everything under sin. It kept the people captive. It was a restraint on their sin, and it also revealed their sinfulness all the more clearly. And this is what we discussed more last week. And it did this, Paul is saying, until such time as the coming faith would be revealed. That is, until Christ himself, the offspring of promise, came. Until he would formally bring about and establish the covenant of grace. The law covenant imprisoned everything under sin. It revealed sinfulness all the more while not itself providing the answer and the relief from that imprisonment. However, as Paul writes Galatians, and as we consider it now, the offspring promised to Abraham has come, and with him a new covenant has been established, which actually brings with it freedom for all who are in that covenant. All members of this new covenant are truly forgiven and free from the law's condemnation and demands for righteousness' sake. And so verse 24, he says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So notice here the pronouns that Paul is using. He says here the law was our guardian in order that we might be justified by faith. He is speaking about him and his fellow Jews here. He's speaking collectively here about them as a nation. As a nation, the Jews were under the Mosaic Covenant for a time, and he likens it here to being under a guardian. And he he says this was until Christ came, as we've said, and that they would all the more clearly throughout this time and because of this time under the guardian be prepared to understand and to see that their only hope of a righteous standing before God, their only hope of being justified would be to do to to believe in Christ Jesus. And so the Mosaic covenant had a specific purpose in that, and that purpose has been served now that Christ has come, and it has now ended, the Mosaic covenant. Again, he refers to it as a guardian. This is talking about a hired hand, or it could have been a slave, who was responsible for disciplining and teaching a child until such time as the child came of age and was released from that. This was a temporary role during one's childhood that helped to prepare them Uh, For life as an adult. And this is what the Mosaic Covenant was doing for the nation of Israel, preparing them to see their absolute need to be justified by faith alone. So, again, those of faith in the Old Testament, like Abraham, they were justified by faith as well. Paul has made that clear. But the collective years that the nation spent under this guardian, this tutor, that is the Mosaic Covenant, makes this all the more necessary. It makes it all the more clear that one must only and can only be justified by faith alone. That lesson has been very clearly taught, even if all did not see it and learn it. The lesson has indeed been clearly taught. And so there was, as Paul says, no more need for a guardian. Though Christ has come and this now passes away. So now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So again, that's basically what we talked about last week. The Mosaic Law, neither its ceremonies nor the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, This was not given in order to be the means by which the Jews were to attain a righteous standing before God. It was not a ladder they were to climb as their obedience to prove themselves before God and therefore earn their uh, right standing before God. That was never the purpose. It was temporarily put in place to serve the promise that God would send a Savior And that temporary guardianship of the covenant revealed the utter need for righteousness outside of themselves. An alien righteousness that would be given to them graciously by God through faith, not through works of the law. At the end of the day, what this does is it puts everybody on the planet on the same footing, both Jew and Gentile alike, The Mosaic Covenant was a tremendous privilege for the Jewish people, but it revealed that even those who had the law of God written with his finger on stone, even those who had many more laws clearly laying out what God expected from the people, even these people were still sinners in need of God's grace. Of course, we could look at the pagan Gentile nations and say, obviously, uh, they are sinful and gone astray and are under God's condemnation and are in need of his grace. But but maybe all they need really is just to know what God requires. Maybe their uh, rebellion is just, explained by the fact that they're just ignorant of what God demands. And so if they just had God's word and and knew what God commanded of them, they would be able to reform themselves and change and do the things that God required and so make themselves pleasing to God. And what we see in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel is that's simply not the case. It's simply not true. This is, I think, what it's getting at. It reveals the extent of man's sinfulness. That there is a a tremendous problem much beyond just lacking a little bit of information. That we are sinful to the core of our beings as those who are fallen in Adam. That what we are in need of is not just a little bit more effort, but a complete renovation of the soul by the Spirit of God. And what we are ultimately in need of is God to give us a righteousness in which we can stand and to do so as a gracious gift. This is what is required, and this is what is very clear as we look at life under the Mosaic Covenant in the people of Israel. There is no distinction in the end between Jew and Gentile. We we all know the the verse in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what is the context of that statement? Right before that, he says, for there is no distinction. Distinction between whom? Between what? Between Jew and Gentile. He's been laying out, Paul does, in Romans 1 into chapter 3, that everybody, whether you are a pagan Gentile or whether you were raised in a Jewish home, everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody does what is good. Nobody is righteous, not one. And so the only answer and solution to this is God's gracious gift of righteousness received by faith, not by works of the law. So this was always God's plan to create one people who rally not around circumcision nor boast in their great efforts and works of the law, but who are one in Christ Jesus. So God's one people in Christ from all nations, this was always the plan. Secondly, God's one people in Christ from all nations are those united to Christ by faith. Again, the mark of such people is not circumcision. They are not marked by where they are from or where they live. They're not marked by the Mosaic Covenant. God's people are those who are in Christ. So verse 25 again, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul says the guardianship of the old covenant is now gone because in Christ Jesus, you, again, so now he's talking about you Galatian Christians, which would be made up of both Jews and Gentiles alike, you are all sons of God through faith. Not through your conformity to the law of Moses. You are sons of God through faith. This is a remarkable saying, and hopefully we'll see that even more as we go here. When Paul uses the, the language of being in Christ, this refers to a believer's union with Christ. The believers are spiritually united to Christ Jesus through faith. That we truly belong to him. We are his body. And upon this union with Christ, he says, We are also sons of God. So faith in Christ is the instrument by which a sinner is united to Christ and made God's beloved son, a son. This verse speaks of two of the wonderful blessings of the gospel, being adopted as sons and you being united to Christ. The message of Christ goes out into all the world and all the blessings that Christ has secured, the forgiveness of sins, Redemption, adoption, union with Christ—it all is received by faith, by believing in Christ. And so, the Mosaic covenant, Paul is saying, is no more. We are brought into sonship, into God's family, receive an inheritance by faith, specifically in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Christ is explicitly preached and proclaimed as the only name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. And we are saved by belief in Him, period. One need not join the Mosaic Covenant and become a Jew in order to be saved. Full sonship and union with Christ comes by faith alone. And again, the Judaizers were saying, we read this in Acts 15 earlier, Unless you keep the law of Moses, unless you be circumcised, etc., you cannot be saved. And this is simply not true. Paul gives further explanation here. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Think of water baptism. Water baptism is symbolic of our spiritual union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are united to him in his death and in his resurrection. We, are, we die to self and we are raised to a new life. We are new creations, new people upon faith in Christ and union with him. Paul said earlier in chapter 2 that we, he's speaking in the first person, but if we extend it out to all believers, we are crucified With Christ. And so we no longer live of our own, but Christ lives in us. In Romans 6, he says, we are raised to walk in newness of life. And so this is a reminder that true saving faith is a faith that will indeed go on to produce good works, because saving faith is accompanied by union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Which means there is truly a death that occurs in the believer. We die to our old self and we are raised new creatures. And so we are justified by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. We will go on to produce fruit. And so there are those who will corrupt, I think, what the Bible has to say about Christian unity... And, and faith being the sole instrument by which we are justified to basically say that as long as an individual has some kind of claim to faith in Jesus, then, you know, we can say no more. There's no more tests to be had. And, uh, and, and as a result of that, they will um, use that to excuse all kinds of heresies and, and ungodliness as a result. But of course, we know the scriptures warn about such claims of faith. Uh, James 2 talks about how that kind of a faith is a dead faith. and again, Paul even in at the end of chapter two dealt with that as well as he talks about being crucified with Christ. he's talking about how it is, why it is that justification by faith alone doesn't end in just, well now you just go on and, and do whatever wicked deed you feel like doing and it's no big deal because uh, you know because of, because of grace. no there is actually, a change that occurs in in the, the one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ on account of being united to him by faith. So what Paul is speaking about here with this reference to baptism is ultimately the substance and the reality of what our water baptism symbolizes. A person dying to sin and rising to a new life unto God. So, all who have been baptized into Christ, he says, have put on Christ. This speaks of putting on Christ like a garment. If we are united to Christ by faith, then ultimately we are covered by Christ himself. His salvation is ours. What he has accomplished is to our benefit. His righteousness is ours. We are robed in it. It is in this righteousness that we stand before God justified. All of this, Paul is saying, comes to us through faith in Christ Jesus, not through works. Again, this is all upending the claims of Judaizers and their false gospels who suggest that faith is insufficient to do this. We have to add to it. We have to work to complete this. Somehow, something in what Christ has done is not complete yet until we have added our works to it. That Paul says here that you are all sons of God through faith. This is a, an important phrase. Uh, there's a, a scholar uh, named J.V. Fesco who wrote a, uh, has written a uh, commentary on Galatians. And uh, he makes a point here that's worth sharing, and, and I'm summarizing it. No doubt he said it better. But, um, but there are translations of this verse uh, that, that take sons out and they put in children, so that you are all children of God through faith. And the desire here is to just be clear that this is not simply something that is just true for, for men, for males. I think they're trying to make it maybe not weird, for women, as you read this, about being a son of, of God. Um, but when they do that, they, they, they miss, I think we miss something that's important. The, the word sons and the concept of sonship is important. Because what Paul is saying here, and we'll see it clear as we get into the next verses 28 and 29, is that regardless of whether you are a male or a female, of whether you are a slave or a free man, in Christ you have the full inheritance rights of a firstborn son. That's what he's saying. And so as Fesco says in his commentary, to call a woman a son does not negate her femininity, but rather accords her the same covenantal legal status as a full heir in Christ. We are all sons of God by faith. That is our status. That's what it's getting at. The part of us that is prone towards legalism struggles with what Paul is saying throughout Galatians, but right here as well. Can it really be that we are united to Christ, that we are made full heirs of eternal life in the world to come by faith alone? Can it be that truly we stand justified by faith alone and not by works? Do I not have to do something more to complete this process or to add to this, to make it really have its effect? Paul says no. The scriptures say no. God tells us no. Righteousness by which we stand justified is not by the law. We are clothed with Christ by faith. United to him by faith. Alone. So thirdly, God's one people in Christ from all nations are truly one. We don't see these spiritual realities with our eyes. These are things we believe by faith. But this doesn't make them any less true, right? We live by faith, not by sight. And Paul tells us more about this unity that we share with all who are in Christ. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. With the coming of Christ the Jew-Gentile distinction is done away with. The imprisonment under the law is over, having served its purpose. Salvation comes through faith in Christ Jesus, and all who possess that faith are truly one in Him prior to anything they've done after that. This does not require moving to Jerusalem, nor eating Jerusalem's food, nor being circumcised, nor anything else. Paul is revealing throughout this chapter that a new era has come in the history of redemption. The offspring of Abraham has indeed arrived and he blesses the nations by turning sinners from all over the world from their sin at the preaching of the gospel and through the work of the Holy Spirit through that preaching of the gospel. Elsewhere, Paul writes this in Ephesians 2, verse 14. For he, Christ, himself is our peace, who has made us, Jew and Gentile, both one and has broken down his, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. When Paul says in verse 28 here in Galatians 3 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, he is not erasing those distinctions altogether. If you were a slave in the first century, becoming a Christian didn't mean that your physical slavery suddenly was over with. Uh, Paul, we even see Paul at times in his letters address slaves. Bond servants is translated in the ESV in Ephesians 6:5. Uh, the whole book of Philemon has to do with a slave who was runaway. Similarly, being female or male does not suddenly lose all significance once one becomes a Christian. Again, we see Paul in various places address husbands and and wives. Those are meaningful distinctions and roles. Furthermore, Paul still has a category for ethnic Jews. And we see him sensitive to that distinction even throughout the book of Acts. We see him write about it in various places like Romans 11. So he's not saying that all of these distinctions are suddenly absolutely nothing and there's nothing significant to being male or female at all or or what have you. His point is that in terms of our status, in terms of our standing before God, none of these other things matter. We are one in Christ regardless of how rich or poor you are, or rather you are, whether you are old or young, or whether you are Jew or Gentile or male or female, none of that matters. We are all one in Christ Jesus if we believe in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God, heirs according to promise, offspring of Abraham. This is foundational to Christian unity. Again, regardless of where we are from, regardless of what our background is, and no matter how much progress we have or have not made in the Christian life, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been united to him, then we are all equally full sons, period. Heirs according to promise you don't work your way into becoming a greater heir down the road. Indeed, those who have spent, who get saved at a young age and spend the entirety of their lives seeking to mortify sin and live unto the Lord, would rejoice, ought to rejoice if a, someone who lived their entire life just in the flesh And giving to whatever craving came their way and living in rebellion against God, but who nevertheless professed faith in Christ upon their deathbed. They would rejoice that they are co-heirs with Christ, full members of the new covenant, united to Christ, united to us by faith. We don't resent the lord's mercy or grace to that person and we don't say you have a lesser uh place here in the kingdom because you haven't been at this as long as us we don't take that kind of attitude of course we would never say that to people i trust Uh, we would not say it like that but we can sometimes come off that way this is the insidious nature of our pride and this is jesus talked about this and dealt with this with the jews Who were upset about the Johnny-come-latelys into the kingdom. Who who didn't work the whole day to receive the the wage that the Father had promised to those who worked. Resented late entry into the kingdom. There's an equality here that we possess simply by faith in Christ. A true and actual oneness. We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. It's Romans 12:5. This is foundational for a church. This is why it is we bear with one another, why we carry one another's burdens, why we do not flee at the first sign of difficulty within a church. This is why we exercise patience with one another along the way. This is the why we assume the best of one another and go to each other when we have concerns. This is why we don't stab in the back and slend, slander our fellow heirs. This is why we bear with one another's failings and forgive each other's sins. This is why we seek one another's good and pray earnestly for each other. This is why we correct and admonish one another along the way. And why we do so with awareness of the log in our own eyes. This is why we seek to put off all bitterness and envy and wrath and slander. And why we do not exercise harsh judgmentalism towards one another. But seek to put off our pride by God's grace and walk in humility. For we are all truly and actually, equally one in Christ Jesus by faith. By faith he is your Savior. By faith he is my Savior. Paul says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. If you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, If you don't possess saving faith, accompanied by new life in Christ, understand that you will indeed one day stand before God, almighty holy God, to give an account for your sins. And God, being just, will not simply look the other way, but he will and he must, because of his own holiness and justice, Punish sinners with everlasting judgment for our violations of God's laws and commands. But understand also that God is indeed gracious. And the good news of the gospel is that all who repent of their sin, place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, will be forgiven graciously by God, united to Christ, And made heirs according to promise, heirs of an eternal inheritance. Christ Jesus has died and he has risen from the dead. Satisfaction has therefore been made for all the sins of all who believe in him and so believe in him. And as those who do, as Christians, We are one in Christ, purchased by his blood. This was always God's plan, to bring sinners together in and through his Son. And and here we are now in 2023, in a small city that most of the world knows nothing of and, and couldn't care less about. But in Christ Jesus, We are co-heirs with Christ. Possessors of eternal life. And we are truly one. Whether you were born and raised here, whether you just arrived here recently from some other place, some other country, whether you are wealthy or poor, whether the world has high regard for you or has no idea who you are or hates you, whether you are single or married, whether you are young or old, whether you are living your happiest years or battling through your most difficult, whether you are introverted or extroverted, whether you are a preacher or whether you have no idea what gifts you might possibly have to encourage the people of the Lord. The mature believer of 80 years and the brand new believer of one day are one in Christ Jesus. There is no second class citizenry. Of course, we all have need to grow in grace, to grow in godliness. But that growth is not what gives you standing before God. And as brothers and sisters, we do not wait to love you until you've reached a certain high point. There is precious unity here in understanding that we are justified by God's grace alone through faith alone. And it is something worth Preserving and being on guard for. And so if you are in Christ Jesus, I be stirred up to love your brothers and sisters in Christ all the more. There's there are wonderful displays of it all the time. But just be encouraged to press on in that. And where needed, Repent. Repent of any spirit of disunity or any pride that you might be aware of, that you might know of. Renew your commitment to humble and cheerful and gracious unity. God's one plan since before creation and eventually revealed in promise to Abraham was to create one people, the church, from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and to do so in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we're kind of applying this to our local setting here, but we are just one tiny microcosm of this one people who exist all throughout the world. We are one body with believers in Christ the world over. Which is a remarkable thought as well to consider. Those believers who've heard the word of the gospel and seen Christ as their only hope and who believed, who live in China, a world away from us, a culture apart, one with us in Christ Jesus. Those in Pakistan, again, everywhere. These places that many of us have never been and will never be where the gospel goes forward and people believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are one body. I just want to close by reading Revelation 5, 9 to 10. Now, this is the, the 24 elders in the vision that John has. Here is the this, this song that they sing. And they sang a new song, saying... Worthy are you, and it's, of course, this song is to Christ. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word that you have given to us. We thank you that though we are sinners deserving of your condemnation and wrath, you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to deal with our sin. Father, we thank you that though you could have justly simply wiped us out, you have shown grace and kindness to us. Father, I pray that you would grant us a burden and a a passion, a compassion for the world that is lost all around us. Father, that we would not be those who just get angry and fretful about the, the crazy things that we see. But that we would long to see your churches full as we sung that we would long to see believers turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might be, receive honor through lips that would confess him as Lord and as Savior. Father, we thank you for the fact that you use what seemed insignificant in the eyes of the world to carry out your purposes. Father, we thank you that even today you have done gracious work and that there is even a church in Arcola opening the scriptures, preaching your word, preaching the gospel, a church plant in Regina as well, seeking to do the same. Father, we are so grateful for that. We thank you for your mercy in these things. We thank you for the Kilale family in Peru seeking to take this precious good news to as many as we'll hear them in Peru and to tribes that we don't even know exist. Father, we thank you for the brothers and sisters that we are truly one with now who exist there in Peru. We pray that you would strengthen them, preserve them, keep them, and bless your word that goes forth from them. Father, we pray that you would continue to build us up together. Father, we know that we are one in Christ Jesus. And I pray that we would, that our experience together of that unity would only grow. Father, that you would give us patience and perseverance with one another. And I I thank you, Lord, for where that is evident and on display. And for the fact that you have preserved us as a church this far. And Father, we continue to look to you and your grace and mercy to preserve us into the future, that you would keep us unified and even build our unity even more and more. Father, that, um, that we would just grow in our love for you and our love for one another. Father, we pray that you would bring many more yet into this body, into your universal church and into our church as well. Those who perhaps even at this moment do not confess the name of the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray for your churches all over this province and all over this country where your word is being proclaimed. Father, may it have great effect. Father, where churches have neglected their calling and duty to proclaim your word and to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus, we pray that you would purify and raise up men who will stand and preach. Father, we, we pray for your mercy in this manner and in this way. God, we, we thank you again for this time that we can gather together as your people, sing your praises, read your word, hear your word, and pray to you. Bless us as we close and as we sing yet more and then uh, speak together, Father, um, we just pray for, for encouragement and for help and for gladness of heart in Jesus' name. Amen.